Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you for your truth. Continue to speak those things to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got elementary age kids, we'd love them to be a part of it. We have going on the Vine Kids time. Likewise, if you have middle school age, 5th, 6th, 7th or so, uh, we'd love them to be a part of what we have going on also with our middle school age group. They come out this door and right there to the back in our new built-out area there. And our elementary kids join their classrooms. Well, uh, happy Father's Day to those of you that are fathers. I'm going to give you a 4.2-minute Father's Day sermon, right? So you may want to take some notes, jot these things down. They are revolutionary. They will change your life if you do them, all right? So for you dads or those of you that are soon to be dads, and we have a lot of those new dads or dads that have just become dads and are in there for like the first or second, uh, these are, are great things to live by, right? So here's your Father's Day sermon, and then we're going to dive into our text. First, Fall in love with Jesus, right? So the action, action, activity of falling in love with Jesus. Not love Jesus, but like fall in love. Be in the constant process of falling in love with Jesus. Two, kiss your wife. Now, only if she allows you, right? If she says it's Wednesday, then, you know, just don't. But fall, try and kiss your wife. Let her know that you want to be there, that you love her, that you care for her. Three, hug your kids, right? Hug your kids physically every day. My dad died 21 years ago. His funeral was actually today, 21 years ago. And there's not one day that goes by that I think, I wish he would have hugged me less, right? Hug your kids more. You're hugging them for later and not just for that day, right? So hug your kids. Four, don't be that guy, right? That guy. That guy that is too busy, too stoic, too yeah, angry, resentful, bitter, too whatever, too Republican, too Democrat, too whatever. Don't be that guy. We all know who that guy is. Don't be him. Right? Be the opposite of him. Be the guy that everyone goes, you know what, it's not like that guy. Be that guy. That's what it is. So fall in love with Jesus, kiss your wife, hug your kids, don't be that guy, and your life is literally going to be amazing. Right? So that's your Father's Day sermon. File that away. Um, revert back to it. Try and do it every day. If you do all four of those things every day, you're going to kill this life. It's going to be awesome. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, so we're in the middle of this, starting kind of in the middle of sermon three in this series for the summer. And we kind of take an intentional break of doing what we a lot of times do, which has been working through text to pause for a minute and look at the whole scope of Scripture and examine a few things. And the things we're looking at really are how God, an extraordinary, amazing God, uses ordinary people not just to do his things, his purposes, his ways, but how God changes the lives of those ordinary people along the way. And what we thought we'd do this summer is we would unpack the various lives of individuals that we see in Scripture and invite people to be up here on the stage telling us their story to see how we fall in this great collective of the ordinary, that you and myself, that we fall in this collective of people that really have nothing great to offer the Lord at all. We're just people that God has chosen in all of his, our incredible flaws and mistakes and bumps and bruises and disappointments and failures and anxieties and worries and all of those things to not only do extraordinary things, but the fact that he called us is extraordinary unto itself. And so this summer what we're looking at is top to bottom, from the Old Testament through the New, this extraordinary God who uses ordinary people, right, and the lives that get changed along the way. And I kind of gave a big series introduction the past couple of weeks, but we're going to skip over that and just kind of dive in to where we are. If you want to hear that introduction, all that stuff's available online. You can catch up if this is your first, uh, first time coming this summer and you want to catch up. You can go listen to those first couple of messages. But this morning, we're kind of picking up a little bit where we left off in terms of chronological and redemptive history. Last week, we jumped all the way back to most literally the beginning, and we talked about Abram. 
We talked about God's call to Abram to go and to leave his father's household, that he was going to be giving birth most literally to a nation and to set the benchmark and the movement forward for redemptive history. God's call on him and what that looked like and how God promised Abraham that he would be with them, that he would lead them and he would take care of the outcomes. And we explored that call. Well, we're going to fast forward just a little bit in redemptive history and we're going to come to Moses, right? Moses, who, of course, like Abraham, is sort of this incredible biblical figure that seems a little bit larger than life. But like Abraham, if we really examine Moses, Moses was the definition of the ordinary as well. He had nothing great to offer but a basket of fears and failures that the Lord uses to change all of history. And so this morning we're going to look at God's call on Moses. And we're really going to pay attention to the sort of contrast and juxtaposition between God's call and Moses' response and who God is and and who Moses is. And we're going to take a little bit different look at a story that you hopefully Uh, are familiar with as we look at Exodus chapter 3 this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be examining and looking at Moses, uh, Moses' call specifically by God. Let me get us there real quick, just in terms of, you, so you know where we are, having come from Abraham and how we get to Moses. Just a little quick, kind of terribly brief uh, picture of history, just so you kind of have a an understanding, because I do think understanding Scripture in its context is really important. And we don't just want to lift things out. We, we need to know the beginnings and the, and the afters of all those things that make kind of Scripture, Scripture. But to get us from Abraham to Moses, the short, very short, very incomplete story is essentially this. God has called Abraham um, out of Mesopotamia. He has called him uh, to go and to go to a land that God would show him, right? To take essentially his family, leave his father's family, and go to this land and God presents Abraham with this land and tells him that he's going to have a family and that family is going to give off, uh, birth to an entire nation. He gives him the covenant of circumcision and says, this is how the entire world is going to know that your people, my people, are different from all of the world. And he makes a covenant uh, with Abraham. And Abraham has sons. He has Isaac and he has Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph is hated by his brothers. His brothers can't stand him. They're really resentful for lots of reasons, most of which are silly. But they sell him into slavery. And they think they can get rid of him and they go back and tell the father, Jacob, that he's dead. And Joseph goes into slavery and he's kind of uh, just given great favor. God just gives Joseph favor. And he raises kind of through the ranks of slavery. And through a series of things he gets kind of thrown into jail. And he raises up through the ranks of prison where he finds favor with those in jail, finds favor with the guards, and then eventually finds favor with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the head of all of Egypt, the most powerful man on earth at the time, finds favor with Joseph and elevates Joseph's position to incredible power, where Joseph is in charge of a whole lot of Egypt and Egypt's territory. Well, the promised land where Jacob and his sons are has a great famine, and they freak out a little bit, and they hear that Egypt has food, and so they all head down to Egypt, right? They have no idea that Joseph is in power there. They sold him into slavery, and Jacob thinks he's dead. They show up in Egypt, and lo and behold, here's Joseph. Well, Joseph has great mercy on them, gives them food, takes them in. And the Israelites find favor in Egypt for quite a while. Well, eventually that Pharaoh dies, and another Pharaoh rises up. And that Pharaoh doesn't really know about Joseph and all those people that are his. He doesn't really care. In fact, he looks at him and says, there's about a million plus Israelites here, and I don't like any of these people. And so uh, we're going to enslave them 
and we're going to stop their numbers from growing. And they go as far as to try and kill all the infant children or the ones that are just being born, right? Because that Pharaoh has, doesn't desire anything. He just wants to be in power, doesn't have any deal with Joseph. Well, one of those babies that was attempted to be killed had a purpose that was set apart by God. That baby's name was Moses. And when the Pharaoh was, Pharaoh was going around having his babies killed, Moses' mom got nervous, didn't want him to die, so she puts him in a basket, right? Remember the story. Hides a basket in the reeds. Well, someone in Pharaoh's household finds a basket. They take that baby in, and essentially they raise that baby in Pharaoh's household. That baby is Moses. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household. Forty years or so, Moses is raised up there, and he's going with a sort of contrast of having his people, the Israelites, which are enslaved in Egypt and being raised in the family of Pharaoh itself. And one day he's out walking around surveying and he sees an Egyptian and an Israelite get in a fight and they're physically fighting. And so Moses breaks it up and he breaks it up and he looks around and he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. All right. Next day he goes out walking around, he sees two Israelites fighting, breaks that fight up and they look at him kind of with disdain because they don't really like Moses for how he's grown up. And they have a lot of resentment towards him. And they say, you're going to break up our fight. Why don't you kill us or kill me? The one that was kind of started and said, just like you did the Egyptian, right? You're going to kill me too? Well, Moses, feel, kind of figuring out that people know that he killed this guy, he freaks out. And he, le he leaves. He literally flees Egypt. 40 years old, runs away from his people, from Pharaoh's house, just <whistles> skirts. Lands in a place called Midian, where he bumps into a priest of the area and finds him by a well and bumps into a family and all kinds of things. And for 40 years, he starts a family, gets married, and has a family and becomes a shepherd. For 40 years, Midian. And at 80 years old, God is going to appear to Moses and call him in Exodus chapter 3. So that's how we get from Abraham to Moses. And this morning, we are stepping into 80-year-old Moses' life in the middle of God's call for him. And we're going to look at that juxtaposition between who Moses is and who God is and what that means for you and me. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and let's dive into God's word together. Lord, I thank you that you are living, that you are alive, and that God, death cannot contain you, and that through the cross and resurrection, we have new life in Christ. God, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. This is not some guidebook for our life. It is your very self poured out for us. And so, Lord, we take seriously the opportunity to be in it. And we hold it to be true. We ask you to speak to us through it this morning. So take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever God needs to speak to you, just ask him to teach your heart through a familiar story. God, teach my We do this each week because we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in the life of someone around you, even if you don't know their name, even if you're here for the first time. Just, just take a little bit of your heart and just say, God, move in this person's life. Just pray for someone around you. Ask that God would move in them. We want to be a church that wants to see God move in the lives of the people around us. Lord, we ask as we open your word that you would teach us. Lord, we cannot find you in these pages. You have to reveal yourself to us 
You are holy, mighty, and magnificent God. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. It's a very familiar story. We jump into Exodus chapter 3. We know where we are. We know where Moses is. He's in Midian, right? The uh, Israelites are still enslaved back in Egypt. And this is what God does when he shows up in the life of Moses. Chapter 3, we'll go down through uh, through 14. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared before him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at it, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign that you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So hopefully you're familiar with the story, right? This is a famous story, of course, because it's Moses and the burning bush. But Moses is 80 years old. He's doing essentially what he's done for 40 years. He's tending the flock of his father-in-law. He's wandering around the countryside looking for grass in the desert for his sheep to eat. And he wanders up to the mountain of the Lord, who I spend a lot of time talking about important places in Israel, but we'll bypass that one for right now. That's an important place, and it's going to become even a more important place. But he wanders upon this mountain, and he sees this strange sight, and there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up. And so Moses, <clears throat> like you or I would kind of do, looks and goes, I shall see this strange sight of this bush that does not burn up. And he walks over there, and sure enough, as he stands there, this bush is unburning, and God sees him, and God speaks to Moses out of the bush, and he says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on a holy ground, both literally the physical place and in the presence of God, right? He says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And it says that Moses was afraid, and he hid his face. And God said, I have got a call for you. You are going to go to Pharaoh. I have heard the Israelites calling out to me. They are being oppressed. They are being held in slavery, and they are being treated really poorly. And I've heard their cry, and we're going to rescue them. And I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses, of course, response is, who am I to bring them out of Egypt? God says, essentially, you will go. I am with you. And this will be a sign you'll bring them back here and you'll worship on this mountain. 
And he says, but if I go to them and uh, they ask who sent me, I tell them it's a God of their forefathers, what do I say your name is? And he says, of course, in this really famous kind of thing that we've explored here a lot, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. It's a really powerful text. And when I really look at it and you think about it, it almost just kind of gives you this sense of wonder, right? I mean, this is an incredible thing. But what I want to pay attention to this morning are, are, are a few, like, contrasts, some, some real juxtapositions between Moses and, and God, or between Moses' call and, and, or God's call and Moses' response. Because it's, they're staggering and they're really significant, right? And the first thing that we see right there in that text that's staring us in the face is the contrast between the holiness of God and the ordinariness of Moses. So I've said this in here a a zillion times. If there's any doctrine that the evangelical church has done away with, it's got to be the doctrine of the holiness of God. Like we have exchanged that and we have filled our pulpits with grace and truth and love, which is very true and very right. But we have exchanged much of the holiness, wonder, majesty of God for those things. If you hear any contemporary Christian song lyrics or even a lot of our worship songs, they are dripping with this romantic idea, this sort of, idea of God's incredible, all-encompassing love and grace, which is, again, true. But we have done away with the holiness, the wrath, the judgment, the power, the wonder, the awe of God. Well, listen to what God says to Moses when Moses comes over to the bush in verse 4 and 6 there, right? When he saw that Moses had gone over, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the very place you are standing is holy. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see immediately the contrast between holy God and ordinary Moses. God says, remove your shoes because the place both before and now and soon to be is marked territory. It is holy. And not only that, you are in the presence of God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when Moses heard that, what was his response? Moses' response was to hide his face, to shield his face from the presence of God. Because Moses in all of his ordinariness was in the presence of holy God. And if we have done anything, we have have done away with this sort of doctrine of the holiness of God. And we exchanged it for a doctrine of complacency and comfort. That God is our friend, our homeboy, our best person, our whatever. That he doesn't judge me for my sin. He looks down upon me and says, it's okay. And we forget that God is majestic and mighty. That Isaiah says, says, woe is me. That he tells us the train of God's robe fills the temple. The greatest structure that human hands could build doesn't even contain or hold the very tip of the end of the train of the robe of God. That God in his infinite, amazing power is righteous and holy. He is not safe. He is dangerous. And he is majestic and mighty and holy. And we approach God with this sort of mediocrity and complacency in our own sin. As if none of it bothers him or matters. Moses, when he found himself in the presence of God, hid his face. And this happens all through Scripture. All through Scripture, we see people, when they encounter God, they fall to the ground. Moses later, his hair is going to go white. Saul goes blind. People even die when they encounter God in Scripture. Because God's 
holy and he's righteous and you and I are sinful and broken. And in all of his majesty and wonder, we can't even be in the presence of mighty, holy, majestic God. Cannot look upon him, right? Because of all of his wondrous goodness. Moses is, for all practical purposes, the very picture of ordinary. He was afraid. He's a murderer. He's a fleer. He's a runner. He's a hider. He ran to a different land because he was afraid to address his mistakes. And for 40 years, he hid amongst sheep, hoping nobody found him. Moses is a stalwart of the Christian faith, or the, the biblical faith. He's just a guy who's afraid. And that guy who's afraid encountered the holiness of God, right? This crazy sort of contrast there. That's true for any of us. We have to take seriously the fact that we come here to worship on a Sunday morning a God who is just as holy and majestic today as he ever has been. And just because we don't treat that doctrine, I believe, with the respect that it portrays in Scripture, doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. Your sins aren't a joke to God. He didn't look at our lives and be like, it's okay. You know, you do what you want to do until you get old enough to have kids and y'all can all kind of come back to church. It's fine. That's how God treats us. We have to take seriously the fact that we are in desperate need of a God who is more holy than we can imagine. And we do nothing to deserve that. So we've got this picture, this holiness, right, of God and the ordinariness of Moses. And so how does Moses kind of respond to this God? Well, God gives him a very specific call, doesn't he? And Moses actually responds with a very specific fear. So God's call is really specific. A lot of times God's calls in Scripture are not super specific. It's like go to that road, the desert road that leaves to Gaza, Philip. Just hang out for a while. Or get up and go, Saul, to the place in that city that I'll show you. Well, this one's actually pretty specific. It says, I want you, I have heard my people in Israel, or my Israelites crying out to me, they're being enslaved. I want you to go to Pharaoh, the house that you grew up in, and I want you to get those people and I want you to bring them back. Not a lot of details in there, but it's pretty specific. And Moses responds with an equally specific fear, right? He says, who am I? We'll get to that in a second. Now, in Moses' defense, this is not a small call, right? I mean, this is pretty massive. He's essentially saying this, Moses, listen, I know you've been hiding for 40 years. I know you've been running not only from the household of Pharaoh, but you've been running from your people. I know that you killed somebody. I know that everybody knows that. And I know that you're 80, 80, 80, right? Like I'm 39, give or take seven. Take seven, right? You're 80. I know that you're a runner. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your family that you have created here for 40 years. I want you to go through the desert, over the sea, back to Egypt. And I want you to walk into that country through the people that you left that resent you because of how you were, uh, were raised. I want you to step into Pharaoh's household of which you fled and of which an Egyptian that you killed. And I want you to walk into the most powerful man on earth who believes he is a god and whose people believe that he is a god and to worship him as such. And I want you to walk up to him and I want you to say this. You, sir, most powerful man on earth, I want you to release these people that are my people. Even though you raised me, I want you to release them. All of them, your slaves, 
of which estimates are about 1.5 to 3 million. So I want you to take the entire city of Houston, Texas. I want you to rally them and gather them, and I want you to lead them out after the most powerful God-man on earth says that's fine. Get those people together, have them pack their things, grab their kids, whatever they need, and march 2.5 million people out of a country to this place where we're standing. That's the call. Got it? Pretty big. Moses responds to that specific call with a very specific fear. And he says this. He says, who am I? Right, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? This is where my heart intersects with Moses' heart. See, Moses isn't really doubting God here, right? He's not making this proclamation like, God, that'll never happen. There's no way we are going to get Pharaoh. You and I are going to convince Pharaoh to let these people go. And then i got to organize them all. You know how many camels that is? Like, we cannot do, I mean, there's just no way. He doesn't argue any of that. He says his fear is, who am I? And this is something that I have said to God a thousand times in my life. God, who am I? I have nothing to offer. I am a fearful failure of a man. My faith is weak. I'm anxious. I'm worrisome. I'm hiding. I'm running. I'm trying to escape from everything that I know you might be calling me to because I'm afraid. What if they laugh? What if they don't respond? What if it doesn't work? What if I fail you or what if I fail all of them? God, who am I? Now, to give Moses some fair due here, we, maybe that's not exactly what he's thinking, but I see that dripping in that statement. God, who am I? Like, aren't there a thousand better people than me? Moses' real fear was really just about Moses. It wasn't about God. Which is really where most of us fall, right? I mean, I believe God can still do great things in you. I have a really hard time believing he'll do them in or through me. Most of us feel that same way. We have that same, God, who am I? Like, I know my failures. I know my past. I know my story. I know my weaknesses. God, who, who am I? So Moses, right, to this holiness thing, this incredible thing of God with all of his ordinance, his response to God's incredibly specific calls and incredibly specific fear. And so how does holy God respond to fearful Moses? In the way that only holy God does. He reassures him. Holy God responds to fearful Moses by reassuring him. And fearful Moses responds to holy God by doubting. So when God hears Moses say, who am I? Right? Who am I that I should take these people out of Egypt? Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that is given to you. That I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses responds with this very specific fear. And God reassures him because he is holy and Moses is ordinary. And he says, I will be with you. Remember last week we talked about Abram. Remember God's promise to Abraham that God's call is personal, right? We talked about that, that God's call is often costly. But God's always blanketed in God's promises, and God's promises are this. I will lead you, I am with you, and I will take care of the outcomes. 
That promise is the same for you and for me. We talked about it last week. This call of God to Moses is dripping with that same thing. I am with you. So who am I? And God says, you're not alone. I'm with you. That's the reassurance of the holy God. Not looking at Moses saying, no, Moses, you're great, man. You are awesome. You can do it. Right, which is what we want God to be, like our biggest cheerleader. Essentially, God says, yeah, you're right, Moses, you're not worth anything. But I am with you, and therefore you're worth everything. God doesn't give Moses this false sense of security like, yeah, you've got the tools, man. You can do it. Uh, you are powerful, and you are a great leader and a great speaker, and you're an order, and people are going to listen to you. Just go do your thing. No, God just says, it's not going to be you, Moses. I'm with you. And that's all you need. Which I believe is what God does for us, right? He doesn't look at us and say, Trev, you've got the tools, man. You're great. No, God says, no, you are just Trev. But I'm with you. And therefore, it's extraordinary. So God reassures Moses with the promise that he is there. And he says, and even more, I'll give you another sign. When you come back here, I will be, you will worship me right here. In the place that your forefathers worship, in the place we are now, in the place you're coming back to. You will see me again. So how does Moses respond to God's incredible reassurance? The way that only ordinary people do, which is with an extraordinary doubt. So what does Moses say? Okay. So suppose I do this, right, God? I mean, suppose I do this. And I go to the Israelites, the people that resent me and can't stand me. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? So this is Moses' big doubting question, right? So let's say, God, this all works, and I go to the Israelites, and I look at them, and I say, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God sent me to you. And they look at me and say, oh, yeah, what's his name? In other words, what's the secret password? That's what Moses is hung up on, really? He's really worried about that? Not going to Pharaoh, being murdered and killed and all those kind of things that might possibly happen. He's worried what happens when he comes to the Israelites and they say, yeah, what's the name of God? He's like, oh, I forgot. I forgot to ask him. That's what Moses is worried about? No. Because make no mistake, this question really isn't about the Israelites. It's about Moses. Moses is asking God for more details. I need something else. You've got to give me a little more to go on here, Lord. Like, if this really is you, I've got to have more information about you, about what to tell people. Like, Moses is clamoring for details. So when I ask him and they say, who sent me? I need to be able to give him something else. i got to tell him something. You've got to reassure me. You have to give me more details so that I feel like we can do this. And how many times do we plead and beg with God for that same thing? God, I hear you calling me. And God, trust me, God has never called me to anything as remotely giant as this which makes my heart all the more sad, actually. But how many times have I clamored back to God going, God, i got to have some more. Like, how does this work out? Does this have an end game? Can you show me that in five years it's all going to be okay? Can you just give me a glimpse that you've got the other side of this? Like, I just need a little bit more. So I'm just going to sit here and beg you to show me more so that till I feel good about where my own heart is. This is basically what Moses is doing. God. Give me your name. Give me something. You can't just send me out there and expect me to follow empty-handed. So God reassures Moses by saying, I'm with you. And Moses responds by saying, I need more. I mean, if this passage drips with me, 
God says, Trevor, I want you to do this. It may not even be specific. I just want you to do this, be this, or drop that, or whatever it is. And I look at God and go, I can't, man. I'm afraid. And God says, Trevor, I am, I'm with you. And I say, awesome. you got to show me more. And God says, I'm enough. And I spend the next four years wrestling with that truth. That's the holiness of God and the ordinariness of Moses wrapped up in all of our lives. So Mo God doesn't ridicule Moses. He doesn't look at him and say, why do you keep asking all these questions, dude? Like, seriously, let's just go. He says, okay, you want a name? I'll give you a name. When they ask you, tell them that I am who I am. And if you really try and translate that in Hebrew, it's actually unpronounceable. It's all consonants. It's the name of God that no one can speak. So if God says, you want a name? Yeah, try and say this one. Because ultimately, God is indescribable and indefinable. He's not contained by our human wisdom and our human language. He is mighty and holy and righteous. And he says, tell them the great I am sent you, or the I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. And what's even more amazing is that God is doing this incredible thing in redemptive history, right? Do you remember back when we were studying the Gospel of John, chapter 8, the Pharisees and the sort of religious law keepers are furious with Jesus. Because Jesus made a statement that basically sounded like, and rightly so, that he was greater than Abraham. And so the Pharisees say, are you telling us that you are greater than our father Abraham? Right? And Jesus responds by saying this. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus had wanted to just say, before Abraham was, I existed, he would have used the Greek sentence structure, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't. He does a very intentional thing. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Equating himself with the God of Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, all of them. In other words, I am the I am. Jesus claims right there in front of the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. God's movement in redemptive history is calling Abraham, goes through Moses, passes through the lines of the kings and the prophets to the person of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, the beginning, and the fulfillment of redemptive history. That Jesus is in fact God. And the promise of God is that not only is he with us, but for the believer, he is dwelling in us. And as followers of Christ, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, and yet our argument with God is the same as Moses. God, I don't know. God, I'm afraid. God, I need more. And in all of God's incredible holiness, instead of destroying us, for our lack of faith, which he should do because he is righteous and mighty and holy. He has this incredible compassion and he reassures, he reassures, answers out of all of our questions and then gives us his presence. The thing that kind of plagues my heart this morning and hopefully all of our hearts as we look at this text and we kind of examine these calls both of Abram and of Moses is really, do I believe that God is who he says he is? Like I believe the God of Abraham and the God of Moses and Jacob and Isaac and all those kind of things and Paul and Peter and John like we looked at in Acts, but do I truly believe that God is who he says he is? 
what would it take for me to be fully in, fully trusting that God is God, that he is the great I am, that he will always be with me, always lead me and take care of the outcomes. That I cannot do any of it on my own, not a single stitch, can't draw breath without him. And that that is enough for me. It's just enough for me. God is holy. You are ordinary. And it's an extraordinary thing that that God not only wants to use you, but will change your life. And then when you shout from the rooftops with all of your doubts, God will reassure with his presence. And when you argue his presence, he will never leave. That's the holiness of God in all of its glory and beauty. So the promise this morning as we close our time in worship and we walk out of these doors is that this is the God that we serve, the God that should throw us out, but the God that never does. The God that through Jesus, right, the incredible incarnation of the presence of mighty holy God rescues and redeems sinful humanity, dwells in our lives, goes with us and before us. That's the promise of God. That's the God that we gather here to worship. That's the holy, magnificent, mighty, wondrous, incredible God. And the fact that he does not toss us out is just amazing. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you. We are so grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Look at Moses' life, and I think, golly, man, Moses was great. But then I really look at his life, and I'm like, man, Moses was a lot like me. And I confess, Lord, there are times in my life where I am just really fearful, where I am worried, where I need reassurance, where I beg you for more. And you've never called me to go to Pharaoh and deliver millions of people. Sometimes you just called me to stop being stupid. And so I'm afraid of that. I think a lot of us in this room are kind of in the same place. We want to walk this relationship out with you that is full of trust and wonder. And we're afraid. We're afraid of what that means and what it means to let go of and what it means to turn loose. And we're begging for reassurance. And every time we beg, you say, I am here. I've never left. I am with you. And even when we clamor for more, going, I know that God, but I need more. You say, you want more? I'll give you more. I am. I am the I am. In other words, I am everything you will ever need. I'm every breath you will ever breathe. I'm everything you need. God, as we close our time in worship, I pray that that would just penetrate our hearts and that we would firmly seize those truths. That you are holy and that we don't deserve anything you give us. But you lavish us with your presence. You never remove it. And that through the person of Jesus Christ, you have given us the indwelling spirit of God. The forever promise. And that we have new life in Christ as part of your redemptive plan. So Lord, we have reason to celebrate and to proclaim and to worship because you are the I am. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.